This is a Woodside Church podcast. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian Gibbons. I'm married to Rosie and we're currently based at the West Side. We have three grown-up children, Andrew, Alex and Amy. Amy's married to Fraser and recently gave birth to our first granddaughter, a gorgeous little girl called Aria. This summer, different speakers are doing a series of talks on the theme, It Means a Lot, talking about pieces of scripture that have particular significance for them. Mine is a very short passage, Acts chapter 7, verse 58. But before we read it, it's helpful to remind ourselves what was going on at this point in the gospel story. Jesus had been executed on the cross. He'd risen from the dead, spent time appearing to and teaching his disciples before finally ascending into heaven. The Holy Spirit had then come on the disciples, empowering them and emboldening them to speak out the good news that Jesus had risen, is alive, is the true Messiah prophesied by the Old Testament and will return again to establish his kingdom fully on earth. This set them at odds with the leaders of the Jewish establishment who believed that Jesus was a blasphemer against the true God of Israel and that this growing group of his followers needed to be stopped in their tracks and fast. The disciples started to be persecuted by the Jewish religious authorities. One of them, Stephen, who acts 6 verse 8, describes as a man full of God's grace and power, who performed wonders and signs among the people, debated with the religious leaders. And it says that they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So they got together false witnesses, arrested him and put him on a sham trial before the Sanhedrin, a sort of religious court. Acts chapter 7 then relates Stephen's speech to the court in which, at great length, by detailed reference to Jewish history, he was able to show how Jesus was the fulfilment of all that had happened in the Old Testament, that the Jews had completely missed the point that Jesus was the Messiah, but that they had betrayed him and killed him. The members of the Sanhedrin were so angry at what they heard that they immediately dragged Stephen outside and quite literally lynched him, illegally stoning him to death. And then, in verse 58, come these words. Meanwhile, The witnesses laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll come back to this in a little while. But let's first fast forward to the summer of 2011. Our eldest son, Andrew, had just finished his A-levels and was about to take a gap year working with the church on the Frontier Project before going to university. One evening, we noticed a lump on his neck. 
He went to the doctor and was referred to the hospital and in January 2012 he had part of his thyroid gland removed. A sample was sent off for analysis and several weeks later the surgeon phoned me to tell me that tests showed that there was what he described as a minimally invasive carcinoma. Very rapidly, Andrew was referred to Avonbrook's Hospital in Cambridge for further treatment. While we waited for the appointment to come through, Rosie and I quite simply fell apart. We didn't hear the words minimally invasive. We just heard carcinoma. Our precious son had got cancer. I remember one Sunday morning going forward for prayer and we could hardly tell the person praying for us what was wrong for the tears. Soon after that, we took Andrew over to Cambridge for his first appointment. and We were told when we got there to go to the anonymously titled Clinic 10, which turned out to be the head and neck cancer clinic. If we were worried before, the seriously ill people that we saw while we waited outside the consultant's office, sent us to another level of fear and distress. And then we were called in, and the very first words that the consultant said to Andrew were, you're not going to die of this. In an instant, our fears lifted. It wasn't over, of course. There were five more years of monitoring and another operation. But in 2021, Andrew is fine. There was something about the consultant, about his manner, about his interest in what Andrew was doing both for his gap year and his forthcoming theology course at university. It caused me to wonder whether maybe he was a Christian. So when I got home, I googled him and it turned out that indeed he was. I found myself listening to an audio file of him preaching at Great St Mary's Church in the centre of Cambridge. In our community group that week, we had been studying the book of Acts, the stoning of Stephen, and in particular, the words of chapter 7, verse 58. As I listened, the host introduced our consultant and then he spoke, reading those exact words. The witnesses laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. And in that moment, it was as if God was saying, I've got this. I'm in this with you every step of the way. And I always have been. And I've even sent my faithful servant, who just happens to be a top surgeon in this field, to help you. One of the names for God that the Bible uses is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. In the beginning, when God created us, he was with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It even says he would go for walks with Adam in the cool of the evening. But when they sinned, their sin meant that they could no longer be with a perfect God in his garden. 
and they had to leave. But despite that, God still ensured that he was with his people, first appearing to individuals like Abraham and Moses, and later on through his presence in the tabernacle, and eventually in the temple in Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies. Jesus left the glory of heaven to live as a man on earth, to show us how to live, to teach us, and ultimately to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins, so that through faith in him, we could be restored into a right relationship with God. You don't get more with us than that. After Jesus had risen again and before he ascended into heaven, he told his followers that he would never leave them. And he sent God the Holy Spirit to comfort and to guide them. And God the Holy Spirit actually dwells in the hearts of believers. You don't get more with us than that. And the Bible teaches that Jesus will come again to be united with his believers, his followers, the church on earth. And this reunion is described as being like a groom marrying his bride, and that his kingdom will then, when he is with his bride, be fully established on the earth. And you definitely won't get more with us than that. In those moments of our crisis and doubt back in 2011-2012, Jesus was not watching us from a distance as a Christmas song says, but with us. That's what Emmanuel has looked like in our lives, and we have witnessed it over and over again. Most recently, when we all got COVID and the months of recovery, which for me in particular followed. Of course, with us doesn't mean that there will always be a happy ending. Sick people don't always get healed. And Jesus acknowledged that after he'd risen, he told his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. See John chapter 12, verse 33. But whatever happens, he is always with us. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, Moses reminded the Israelites what God had told them. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And those words were echoed by Jesus in the final verse of the Gospel of Matthew, when he said, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God never has and never will break this promise. In our experience, things don't have to be going well to glimpse Emmanuel. In fact, we've seen him most clearly in the most unexpected ways 
when things have been at their worst and we have been at our weakest. Paul was later to tell the church at Corinth in his second letter, at chapter 12, verse 9, that God had told him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Over and over again, the Bible describes God as almighty, literally all-powerful, more powerful than anything else you could possibly imagine. But in those weeks back in 2011, 2012, it didn't feel like he was almighty, let alone with us. A political commentator reporting on Stephen's killing might reasonably have concluded that Christianity was well on the way to being finished. Jesus dead, Stephen lynched, and the remaining followers rapidly being rooted out, one by one, through persecution. But the Christian's God was anything but almighty. God almighty turned all that on its head. The young man Saul was a religious fundamentalist who saw that the only way to protect the Jewish religion from what he saw as this Christian blasphemy was to root it out. And so he got authority from the religious leaders to go after the believers who were scattering to places like Damascus to get away from the persecution. And en route to Damascus, the Saul, who was described as breathing murderous threats against the Christians, encountered the risen Jesus. And as a result, he came to faith. And with a new name, Paul went on to become the greatest Christian teacher, preacher, church planter, theologian of all time. Someone who was to give up everything to spread the gospel, the good news about Jesus, outside Israel, to non-Jews. And he took the gospel right across the Roman Empire and was eventually imprisoned and killed for his faith. God's plan for the growth of his church and the coming of his kingdom was and is unstoppable because he is God Almighty. By right, human that is anyway, when we doubted him, God should have washed his hands of us and said, After all that I've done for you, Brian and Rosie, you still doubt me. You're on your own now. But he didn't. Just as he could have snuffed out the murderous, arrogant, bigoted, spiritually blind Saul in an instant. But he didn't. And he didn't, quite simply, because he loves us beyond anything that we can imagine. And that's why he pursued his children out of Eden, to the exile, to the wilderness, to the promised land, however far and however hard they ran, right to the point 
of sending Jesus to die on the cross to pay for all their and all our countless sins down the ages and to restore them and us into right relationship with him forever. So, of course, he pursued Saul. So, of course, he pursues us. You see, he can't do otherwise. The extraordinary extent of God's grace and mercy doesn't stop there. Not only does he pursue us and redeem us, he chooses to partner with us in the establishment of his kingdom on earth in its fullness. To the point where he even regards, declares that believers are his very sons and daughters. The turnaround in Paul's life as the result of his encounter with the risen Jesus could not have been more dramatic. At first, the leaders of the early church struggled to believe it. Understandably, they were suspicious this, this might be a plan by their former arch-persecutor to trap them. Although it's certainly true that God uses all sorts of unlikely, in our eyes at least, people. This is way deeper than spotting potential, like you might expect from a good manager or film producer or sports coach. God created us, every fibre of our beings. We are his precious creations and he created us for a purpose, to have relationship with him, to worship him and him alone and to rule over his kingdom. Every single person on this planet but for that to come about, we need to be perfect. And as all the rules and sacrifices in the Old Testament showed, there's no way we can do that in our own strength. The only way is to place our faith in Jesus so that the penalty he paid on the cross can blot out all our imperfections and make us righteous in God's sight, so that we can be with him. And if that's how God sees mankind, then that changes how we should see each other and who we share the good news with. As I reflected on the murderous, angry Saul, I was challenged about the angry people in my life. There are people I know who are absolutely lovely until you mention God. And in an instant, they become angry. So I don't talk to them about God. It's just easier. Saves spoiling a comfortable work relationship, a nice evening, a meal or a day out or whatever it happens to be. Afterwards, I try to kid myself that it wasn't the right time and that I would have spoilt the relationship and lost the opportunity for meaningful conversations down the line in the future. Saul was angry because he saw Christianity as a threat to the religion he so loved and cherished. 
But something's only a threat if you believe that it might at least be real. Now Saul was nothing if not thorough. He would have meticulously checked out the accounts of what the witnesses said about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Was part of his anger because he feared it might be true that Jesus might be who he said he was? Whatever the case may be, events proved that Saul was a lot closer to faith than outward appearances might suggest. Is the same true of angry believers in our lives? And if it is, how can we change this? Recognising it is, of course, a start. Being accountable to one another may help. But in the end, maybe we just need to open our mouths and speak. So there it is, a crisis and a strange Bible passage which God used to teach us so much about him, about Emmanuel, God with us, about God Almighty, all-powerful and unstoppable, and about God's amazing mercy and love, which pursues us to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are Emmanuel, that you are with us in every circumstance of our lives, that you never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that you are all-powerful and that you can work any situation to your glory and that you have already won the victory over death and the powers of evil. Thank you that you pursue us with a burning, unfailing love that never falters, however much we run for you or doubt you, or even, like Paul or Saul, consciously work against you. Thank you that whoever we are, whatever we have done to you or anyone else, Jesus has already paid the price for our shortcomings and that simply through faith in him and nothing else we are counted worthy to be in relationship with you as your sons and daughters. Thank you that you are our creator and you have created us for a purpose to worship you and serve you by ruling over this earth in your name. Remind us of your presence with us. Renew our understanding of your might, your mercy and your love for us. And help us to see those around us in the way that you do and speak well of you to everyone and not just to those it is easy for us to talk to. Amen. You have been listening to a Woodside Church podcast. For more information, visit woodsidechurch.com.